0: And I basically, after six months, I went in for my review, and uh, I thought I'd get a stellar review because I'd done everything, every project I had been assigned, I'd done it faster, better than everyone else. My code was the best. All the reviews were amazing. And then he was like, Gokul, meets expectations. I was like, hang on, meets? What do you mean? He was like, because you haven't suggested anything new. I'm like, you didn't tell me to. But he said, that's your job. You're basically coming to me, asking me for your next project. After a few months, I expect you to figure out what you should do versus coming to me. So that was an interesting realization to me. And you've got to figure out how to attack it, how to solve it. Really, what problem to solve took me a few more years. And I think it comes with maturity. It comes with confidence. It comes with being put into situations where you have discomfort
1: Hey everyone, this is Jay
2: and this is Angie
1: and welcome to another episode of across the lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with pan Asian American leaders about identity work and the confluence of the two.
2: Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place.
1: Today, we're excited to speak with Gokul Rajaram. Gokul serves on the executive board at DoorDash and is also a board member of Coinbase, Pinterest, Trade Desk, and others. Gokul's career has spanned multiple iconic companies including Facebook, Square, and Google, where he helped build Google's AdSense from the ground up. Gokul is viewed by many in his network as the most helpful and humble person they've worked with, traits that shown through in our conversation with him.
2: In this episode, we spoke with Gokul about his belief in generously offering help and why it's actually selfish to be selfless, shifting from a paradigm of solving problems to one of identifying the right problems to solve, and why all good leaders need to be both in the clouds and in the dirt, and how his life experiences impacted this view.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Across the Lines. Today, we have Gokul Rajaram been really excited to be able to speak with you, Gokul. So first of all, thanks for coming on.
0: Really excited to be here. Angie and Jay, thank you for having me.
1: Now, Gokul, one of the first questions that we start off with is what was your favorite dish growing up? So what was that for you? I grew up in India.
0: I grew up, uh, my parents are South Indian or they came from South India, but I grew up in North India and North and South Indian dishes are completely different from each other. So again, I had a confused, I guess, in some ways identity even growing up in terms of which dish I liked. I had a South Indian dish, which is dosa, which is a rice crepe I liked a lot, but also a North Indian dish, uh, which is chaat, uh, which is a melange of spices and, and yogurt and so on, which I liked. So I always have, have a mix of North and South Indian and a mix of Indian and American now.
1: So, so with, with the dosa, are you a fan of the dish within the dosa or having the dosa as its own bread and then being able to dip into the sambar and like everything else? What's yeah. your, what's your preference the,
0: there? Just the plain dosa simple
1: I'm a, I'm a fan of like i'm a fan of having like the whole dosa and then like the palak paneer and the, everything within it and just I, I feel like that's probably like an american invention or a canadian invention that's as well i don't think you can find that much in yeah, india i mean i've had
0: dishes manufactured on the dosa here that I, I don't think ever existed just like i think that's the incredible thing about america where we've taken dishes from everywhere in the world and transform them into things that the original inventors never intended
1: for them to be. Exactly. Um, Gokul, one thing that I found on your LinkedIn profile was that you were awarded uh, the Presidents of India's gold medal in your time at IIT Kanpur. I then immediately spoke to my parents about what the heck that means. And what I learned was that it means that you were, and please call me out if I'm wrong here, but you were the top student across all IITs across India in in your given class. First of all, can you confirm if that's true or not? And second of all, if that is true, can you give some context on how, you know, I know you're a humble person, but how impressive that is and how many students were applying for that and, and what the pressure was like to actually live up to getting that type of award?
0: Uh, yeah, good news is that it's not across all IITs, just for one IIT. There were five IITs when I went. And so it was just, uh, it was just the class valedictorian for that, that class, for that IIT. And so there were five of them every year across, one for each IIT. It was still still something I'm proud of. IITs are the closest in India to a very technical school. We didn't have much humanities. It was extremely technical. Every class was essentially engineering or science or some high-level math class, and uh, you never get in thinking that it's even a possibility, but then you start doing well. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy after a a certain period of time. But Something I'm still proud of.
1: And I know there's so many amazing people that have come out of IIT schools and are now Silicon Valley executives and leaders. Can you can you tell like the audience what the pressure is like being in a school like that? And and I'm really curious, Goku, like how did that impact the foundation of your career? And like how did that impact even your mental health going through that an experience like that seems so intense? I, I don't I don't know if <laughs> someone like myself would be able to survive that.
0: I think it's there is some data that shows that. I think immigrants that come to the US because they've gone through tough experiences, almost anything you go through is easier in the US. And I think that's true. I feel the earlier in one's life, one goes through not like physically like brutal, but like really experiences that are just tough. They they kind of are good for you, I actually feel, because almost anything you experience after that is a piece of cake. My take on all of this is that in the Indian system, of education prepares you for certain things, which is given a set of rules being able to do extremely well within those rules, it probably doesn't prepare you as well in a setting where there are no rules and it's completely unconstrained and you've got to figure out what the rules are. Once you get to work, there's no real rules, right? In fact, rule followers, you follow a certain path, but to really do well, I think you've got to break the rules. You've got to create new rules. And so I think that's, that's a mode of thinking that getting a business school degree was what unlocked it for me, where I realized that actually these rules are all artificial. These are people that have set them. I can set my own rules. And that's what I think we all need to get into the mindset of in our careers, hopefully, and in life.
2: Google, that is such a poignant message. You've mentioned you had this mindset of kind of growing up in a world of scarcity, right? And that's, to our conversation earlier, benefited you in some dimensions, but... Also, you've kind of had to have a paradigm shift in your mind after entering a world of abundance. Yeah. So could you talk to us about what that shift was like? What was the driver and what was your thought process going through that?
0: I went to grad school here in the U.S., UT Austin, and then I got a job as a software engineer in, in a company. It was a hedge fund, actually, called D.E. Shaw, and, and I ended up in, in the software arm of that. was a company called Juno Online, which both of you are probably too young to remember. It was a very early ISP in the US that was trying to offer free internet back in the days of AOL and CompuServe. And uh, basically I went in and essentially my manager gave me me jobs and I did extremely well. And I basically after six months, I went in for my review and uh, I thought I'd get a stellar review because I'd done everything, every project I had been assigned, I'd done it faster, better than everyone else. My code was the best, all the reviews were amazing. And then he was like, Gokul, meets expectations. I was like, hang on, meets? What do you mean? I was never used to getting a meets first of all. Why not exceeds? What, I, I was like super devastated at getting a meets. He was like, because you haven't suggested anything new. I'm like, you didn't tell me to. But he said, that's your job. You're basically coming to me, asking me for your next project. After a few months, I expect you to figure out what you should do versus coming to me. So that was an interesting realization to me oh my gosh, I'm expected to do this. And I struggled for the next one or two years to get into that mindset because I was still used to what's next. And I would ask people and they would tell me. And so I said, I need to just break myself out of this thinking. And I ironically, I went to school to break myself out of this thinking. I said, I have to go to business school to really, uh, really figure out how to break myself the of thinking of, give me a problem and I'll solve it. But what problems are there to be solved? Who decides that? And and uh, And so a business school, I think, some of the formative classes were, they were classes involving case studies where given a situation, you had to basically come with ideas. So there's no right or wrong answer. So it was really liberating to me to be in a situation where there's no right or wrong answer uh, because some of the classes like econ and so on, there's very clear answers and you write them and I did really well. But the ones that it was the hardest for me, were ones that were completely open-ended discussions and there was no right or wrong answer. And so that's where I started getting more and more comfortable with the lack of structure. I realized that what I was really used to was structure in my whole life, my thinking, and I create structure. But after those two years, one thing I got very comfortable with was lack of structure and being able to say that I can be the one who comes up with the structure and the problem to solve. So I think it was a mental shift over two years of more and more uncomfortable situations. After the first semester, when I realized that I did really poorly on the case study classes, but really well on the structured classes, I started putting myself into more case study classes, even though it was very uncomfortable for me. So the discomfort slowly by fourth semester, the final year became more comfortable where I started figuring out how to react or how to be in a situation where an open-ended problem is given, or in a situation where you have to figure out what the problem is, right? The ultimate self-realization is where you don't even know what the problem is, and you've got to figure out what the problem is. That's what the CEO, or the entrepreneur does. And that took me a few more years of being a product manager. To figure it out, so by the end of business school, I was at a problem where okay, it's an open-ended problem. Business school is good because there's no consequences to failure. In work, there are many times consequences to failure unless you have a very good manager and and they're putting you and you know it's not you always you feel nervous failing, and many people don't want to fail. All of us who wants to fail, right, at work.
2: And Gokul, you've been mentioning this point and this underlying theme of making rules, breaking rules, creating your own rules versus trying to play by others' rules. And I'm trying to reconcile this with something that we heard from Christine, who graciously introduced you to us and other folks in your network too, which is that you are one of the most humble people that they know. And I can see you looking kind of uncomfortable because of that humility, I'm sure, (laughs) to that statement. But in, in my mind, it's just seeming kind of like, tension almost between being a contrarian, being a rule breaker, making your own rules, and also being someone who has that quiet, powerful humility. How do you think about the balance of those two in in the way that you show up professionally and in the world too?
0: One of the things I've learned in my life now that I've had a 25-year-old career is that you got to pay it forward. I believe in the concept of karma a lot. And I feel the universe uh, does good things for you in strange ways that you don't even realize if you're just selfless in your actions and pay it forward. And so that's become a cornerstone of my life. If someone asks me for a favor, unless it really inconveniences me, most favors that people ask for is an email intro or 15, 20 minutes of time, et cetera, is literally super easy for me to make time for that. And I just see that it happens in strange ways that that person said a kind word about me to someone else, so in general, it's it's a selfish thing, a long-term selfish thing to be selfless, because you never know. You know, I think the universe punishes you if you have too much hubris. Nothing separates us from each other, really. We're all human beings, and we are all placed in serendipitous situations, and so more lucky than others. Let's not confuse luck with, you know, any. There's no reason that luck can instantly be taken away right? in a moment. You know, when the universe helps us has helped us so much in our life. And that's what we can all aspire to do. The small, you know, these are all small things. I mean, it's great. I'm grateful that people think that I'm doing something amazing, but it's just an email or, a, you know, everyone should do this. I think the world would be a better place and I think good things would happen.
1: I resonate with that point a lot. It's, it's very, it's very selfish to be selfless. And, and it, I, I love that point. Do you have, do you have like a funny story or, or, or like a memorable experience of you going out of your way to help someone that you didn't really think much about. And, and then later down the road, when your career kind of loop back around and either you know became uber successful or like came back and like thanked you for something that you maybe even forgot about that you supported them. Do you have like any funny stories about that? I think there's,
0: there's actually many from the hometown I grew up in. So it's funny because I grew up in a small town in North India and uh, random people will come up to me and say, you remember me from high school, and you helped me with this math problem or something like that. You didn't have to, and this person, you know, is head of engineering at a company or so on. So it's just crazy that even from high school days, 25, 30 years later, on the streets of San Francisco, someone came up to me. So it's just walking around streets. I, you know, now of course with COVID or lockdown, but I would just bump into people that I had no idea who they were, and they still remembered me because I'd done one small act which I don't even remember. And I'm sure all of us have seen that in inconspicuous in ways. So being kind is, you know, it makes you also, ironically, it makes you feel good also a little bit. But more importantly, it makes the other person. Like you said, I think people, when you make that calculation, is this person going to be useful to me? It just is a worthless calculation. And it is also, again, it's, it's not useful because it's not about that person. It's about humanity. Turns out when you help this person, you're helping humanity as a whole. And humanity as a whole is going to help you in some other way. I firmly believe this. I firmly believe this.
2: Yeah, this fundamental idea of what goes it around comes, comes around. around.
0: Right? They say something. Yeah. Like, right?
2: As it goes, right? <laughs> something like that. Exactly. And Google, this reminds me of a tweet that you posted. Something along the lines of leadership and how leadership is part what you said, clouds, which is vision, strategy, all the sexy stuff, right? And also part dirt, which is all the details, all the doing, all the execution. And what you're mentioning around being selfless and offering a helping hand without being calculating and just being altruistic for the sake of it, I think that really ties into kind of like a a core value that's shining through for you here, which is willingness to roll up your, your sleeves and do the work and help everyone and be in the details, no matter how senior or how great you are or how much fame you have. Talk to us a bit about what you're thinking when you crafted this tweet what it means and why it's important to you
0: i think it was actually some of these realizations you have when you have a painful experience and so in this case it was a company i advise i was helping the ceo do a review of his leadership team and uh, we basically had gone through the review revealed that two of the six people essentially were doing during covid you realize a lot more i think some of these things become more obvious who's actually doing the work and who's not because a lot of people It's more easy to understand people's impact but it it, we realized that the 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 people whose whose organizations are high performing and happy were people who were actually in the weeds and engaging with their teams and also stepping in and helping them do the work versus the people who literally i think in the early days of covid you can just step back and send these grandiose emails but not be there for your teams when they need them and just expect things to happen and just kind of staying disassociated and this, you know, basically in the clouds where your team is in the dirt. And so we had to part ways with two of the people at the company. And so that's that was my realization that leaders too, and I think the the CEO had a lot of conversations with, with these people and their expectation as well. We've hired these great teams. We just need to tell them what to do and they'll do the work. But the reality is they needed to work alongside these teams and help them figure out how to get work done in this, in this new normal. And they were unwilling to roll up their sleeves and do it. And uh, the more I I thought about that and looked around and I saw every successful leader I know, it's someone that can model doing the work when it comes to it. Uh, Someone who's just, for lack of a better word, a spreadsheet jockey, who just like comes up with numbers and moves people around like resources, but actually cannot model how to get something done. That those are not people that, you know, people are going to follow. Every leader has a superpower that they can demonstrate by actually doing it. And people actually look up to them because they can, If needed, obviously they're not doing the work all the time, but if needed, they're able to get in and roll up their sleeves and get the thing done, whatever that thing is. I think the day of leaders issuing edicts from the mountaintop, you know, even even now I know, I think Mark Zuckerberg used to write code for, for a very long time after Facebook was started. And Jack was doing designs, Jack Dorsey at Square. And he still is deep in the design. He's one of the best designers I know, et cetera. So every person has super, obviously not everyone can do everything, but they're super. They need to be able to show that it's like their super should not be managing people.
1: Coco, you know, one of the things that we try to do through this podcast is humanize leaders like yourself. So people that are listening can feel like the path that they've been on is something that they can achieve as well you have such an interesting perspective on like silicon valley and, and these larger tech companies startups etc we haven't even talked about your career once <laughs> but it it's it's spanned you know being a product manager at google helping to start adwords there being an early employee at facebook to help scale their own business and going to square and now you're still on the board of pinterest and coinbase and you've had a remark and an executive ador- a remarkable career More importantly, you've spent time with people that are leading these large organizations. I'm curious on this theme of being able to humanize these leaders, what are some of the things that you wish that people who weren't in those circles knew about those individuals to maybe humanize them a little bit?
0: All of them fundamentally, what is interesting is none of them started a company with the goal of starting a company. They all experienced a problem in their personal lives. That's a crazy thing. If you look at Jack... At Square, he started the company because his friend, Jim, who became his co-founder, was his credit card. He was not accepted by his bank to accept credit cards. He was a sculptor selling glass sculptures, and he lost customer after customer because he couldn't accept credit cards. So I think when you start with a very personal problem, you encounter it either in, in your personal life or work, it's a more authentic company because you know exactly the problem you're solving and who you're solving it for. But then I think you've got to... If you as you start seeing that problem resonating, I think the thing all of them did was they started thinking big. They started realizing that this is a problem that affects is universal, and I think Reed Hoffman at LinkedIn is the same thing. You know, he is the ultimate connector, and he started a company that essentially was a manifestation of the problem he faced uh, around connecting with people. And and so I think all of them are you just realize that they all they know the problem that the company is solving intimately and they never lose sight of that, but they think extremely big. The other thing I've seen is they're never driven by money. They're driven by building something that's used by every single person in the world or in, in the in the audience that they're targeting, every single merchant or every single person, or the case may be. And they have a vision that they're unflinching. They, they are flexible on tactics on how to get to that end point, but that vision never changes. But ultimately, when you talk to them, they, they have these interesting ways of just staying in touch with the core of the company. They're all avid users of the product that they themselves have. So they are the ultimate super user of the product. And so each and every one of these founders understands how the product works, understands the dynamics of the product, understands what makes the product successful better than anyone else in the company can because they understand the core problem of the company. And so I think I always believe that companies need to be started not because you want to start a company but because you want to solve a problem and the company comes out of solving a problem. So I'm trying to figure out these authenticity around problems is something I've seen a consistent theme across all the great founders.
2: This idea of your life story and your life's passion being so intertwined with your work, I think it's, it's really the core tenet of what underlies why we do the podcast, right? But going back to your point, Google, around how all these people who you work with and yourself as well, they all have these incredible superpowers. So in a way, it's very inspiring and also just like heartening to see that when you have that conviction and hustle, that talent and an idea ultimately rises to the top. So on one hand, it's great to see that. On the, on the other, I'd be curious to get your thoughts around this idea of superpowers, both in curation and also the other part of it, which is advocating for that and making sure that that is part of how others perceive you as well. So could you talk to us a bit more about that, right? The two dimensions of superpowers, one being how do you discover and curate that? And then the other part, which is, how do you make that part of the identity that you put forth in the world and advocate for yourself?
0: I feel that your superpower is something that you don't, sometimes they are latent. You don't even know that you have it until you expose a situation where it emerges. So the only way to actually know what your superpower is, is to expose yourselves to many different situations at work and by situations, I mean two kinds of situations. One is in domains. So you want to be, you want to try different kinds of domains. You might, you know, if you look at the world of technology, there's consumer products, there's B2B SaaS products, there could be transactions, there's lots of different domains. But then there's different functional areas. There's building things, engineering products, et cetera. There's negotiating, which is called dev business partners, there's leading teams, there's design, there's you know, there's marketing as, as an individual. You owe it to yourself if you haven't, if you haven't yet figured out what your super is. You'd want to, if you think of a uh, matrix of uh, domains on one, one axis and, and functions or skills as another axis, you have these cells and you want to try to fill as many cells as possible, especially in the functional side because that's where you really get to see. For example, by, during business school, I said, you know, maybe I like business development. So I did a business development internship. I was like, that is not my superpower. That's not something I was happy because super is something I think is not just what you're good at. It's what you're good at what makes you happy, which is what you enjoy doing. And I think, and then third one is of course what society values, right? The Venn diagram of all three is, is what, that, that little overlap is what success is. What you're good at, uh, what you enjoy doing, and then what society values. And the only way I think to discover it is to really expose yourself to few situations. And so for me, I tried different functional roles and business school again was a great way for me to explore BizDev. I did marketing, I actually did venture capital, and, and corp dev, I realized that product, I did a product and I loved it. I loved it and got really good feedback. And I also had done product-like stuff at my previous job. And I, I felt that's, that's what I enjoyed doing. And try ideally, you know, what you enjoy doing is what you start with. And if you're good at it, that's it. I mean, and, and if society values it, of course, right? I can be good at growing plants, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's, that's a harder one for society to value. I'm be good at it and it's uh, something I enjoy. So the third dimension is important, at least professionally.
1: Google, we've had so much fun chatting with you and looking at the clock and we're getting near the top of the hour. As we wrap up, at, at a high level, and maybe even specifically, would love to kind of hear you share any uh, relevant career advice or, or life advice that things that you did really well early in your life and earlier in your career that has kind of led to a lot of success and um, if you haven't mentioned it already, which you've already provided, so I need to go back and listen to this and start taking notes of all the career advice and personal advice you've given us. Um, but is there anything else that you didn't have a chance to mention that you want to make sure that you can share with our listeners?
0: The number one thing I think that helped me early in my career is curiosity. And what that means is, I think uh, when you join a job, you're very focused, everyone's very focused on keeping their head down and doing great work at the job you've been hired for. And that's very important. Don't get it wrong. For the first three to six months, you need to do that. But that shouldn't prevent you from raising your head up once you have a good handle on your job and understanding what's going on around you. When I was at Google, I was put on this project. I was working on these syndicated ads and that was fine. But then I started walking around after three months and I went to the the office few doors down and I saw there were a few engineers in there and they were working on something. I was like, hey, what are you guys working on? It was a project that uh, Sergey Brin had started, the co-founder of Google, to help figure out for a given page on the web what ads to show based on topics we extracted based on the search index. It's like, Oh, that's interesting. Can I start working with you? Like, don't you already have a job? We, we saw you're working on this thing. Like I can work nights and weekends with you. I can work after 6 PM or 5 PM every day, two hours, just, you know, helping you. And so I started doing that. And after a month or two, that thing started growing so fast that my, my boss saw this and basically moved me to this project. And that became AdSense, which is uh, Google's ad network. And, uh, I'm very grateful I did that. And I think time and again, I think those serendipitous moments, it doesn't need to be that. It just means meeting other people outside of what you do, just learning what they're working on, being curious, because those connections, random connections are what really lend to them. you finding opportunities that are just, just non-linear, right? There's linear paths, but you always want to look for these non-linear opportunities, which are just a way to just break, as I say, careers are no longer a ladder. It's It's a... It's a gymnasium where you kind of clamber up a different ways, and there's no no one path, right? It's not like you make associate, senior associate, like back in the day, manager, senior manager, director. Yeah, that's one path, but who wants to do that for 20 years? We all want to do, try different things. And so that's my thing, be curious, do your job well. Zoom makes it harder. That's the other thing you've got to be extra. You've got to take extra time and effort to actually set up Zooms with, with colleagues that you don't know, but you've seen them on an email and just introduce yourself and see what they're doing. And that's, I think, going to be very important. I think that's, that's the biggest challenge of Zoom. I think we are isolated and can't meet with people in person. There's no more hallway conversations and that, that serendipity is lost.
2: Gokul, this has been such an incredible way for Jay and I to at least scratch our curiosity. So thank you so much again, Gokul, for coming on and thank you so much too, to Christine, if she's listening to this, for making the introduction. It was So appreciated and truly an honor.
0: Thank you, Angie. Thank you, Jay. Loved it.
2: Thanks so much for tuning in to Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it.
1: And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.